Most servicemen and women are brave, but there is something special about holders of the Victoria Cross. They are modest men who, above all else, want to appear ordinary. But they are, of course, nothing of the sort. Many things have changed the face of warfare, but the nature of human bravery and raw courage remains as impressive now as it ever was. Hello, this is Paul Harbottle speaking, and tonight in Victoria Cross Podcast, we're going to have a look at a man called Bill Speakman, VC, or as his friends would know him, Big Bill Speakman. Right, well, look, let's get stuck straight into it, shall we? And as I've just stated a minute ago, he fought in the Korean War, uh, along with a lot of other conflicts later in life, but... Uh, we shall drill down on what he did here in the Korean War. So here we go. The origins of the Korean War can be traced back to the end of the Second World War, when the Allies were entrusted with the control of the Korean Peninsula following 35 years of Japanese occupation. The United States and the Soviet Union accepted mutual responsibility for the country, with the Soviets taking control of the country to the north of the 38th parallel, and the Americans taking the South. Over the next few years, the Soviet Union fostered a communist government under Kim Il-sung, and the US-supported government was a provisional government in the South, headed by Syngman Rhee. By 1950, tensions between the two zones had risen to such a point that two increasingly hostile armies had been built up along the 38th parallel. In the pre-dawn hours of the 25th of June 1950, the Korean People's Army, or KPA, launched a massive offensive across the 38th parallel into South Korea, armed with Soviet equipment and the highly effective T-3485 tanks and the IS tanks, driving the unprepared and under-resourced South Korean military forces back out of their defensive positions south. The North Koreans seized the capital city of South Korea, which was Seoul. They captured it from a poorly led force that was pushed to retreat and pressed them until that retreat had become a rout. General Douglas MacArthur, who had been overseeing the post-World War II occupation of Japan, commanded the US forces that were placed there by President Truman to stop the North's drive to the South and began to hold off the North Koreans at the southern city of Pusan, which was located at the southernmost tip of Korea and defended by a large river. Although Korea was not strategically essential to the United States, the political environment at this stage of the Cold War was such that policymakers didn't want to appear to be soft on communism. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Nominally, the US intervened as a part of a police action run by the UN United Nations International Peacekeeping Force, 
Now, in actuality, the UN was simply being manipulated by the US and NATO for anti-communist interests. With the North Korean invasion halted, the US-10 Corps, led by Major General Edward Armand, had the task of planning an amphibious landing in the rear of the NKPA. General MacArthur wanted to relieve pressure from Lieutenant General Walker's 8th Army, elements of ROKA and UN troops at Pusan. The generals selected Incheon, a Yellow Sea port of 41 kilometres west of Seoul, so just, just slightly west and on a peninsula that was sticking out just below Seoul. The vital roads and railway hubs that linked the NKPA's troops in the south with their supply lines in the north. MacArthur's strategy was for a surprise landing in Incheon. Now, they fought under the codename Operation Chromite. No, that's not the stuff you spread on your toast. To flank the communists and threaten to cut off their armies. Even as an 8th army let out a breakout from the Pusan perimeter and they pushed north at the same time. Having made this landing successfully, MacArthur crushed the North Korean army in a pincer movement and recaptured Seoul. Instead of being satisfied with his rapid reconquest of South Korea, MacArthur crossed the 38th parallel and pursued the North Korean army all the way to the northernmost provinces of North Korea. Afraid that the US was interested in taking North Korea as a base for operations against Manchuria, the People's Republic of China secretly sent an army across the Yalu River. Now, this Chinese army attacked the US, UN and ROK forces and only after an appointment of Lieutenant General Matthew Ridgway as the commander of the ground forces did American morale improve and the initiative began to swing against the Chinese communists. Although President Truman had hoped to end the war quickly and pressed MacArthur to be more tactful, the brilliant strategist went against presidential orders and continued sprouting incendiary lines about his hopes to reunify Korea. After gaining the support of Joint Chiefs of Staff, Truman relieved MacArthur of command. After gaining support from the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Truman relieved MacArthur of command. The move was extremely unpopular in America. MacArthur was perceived as an, a war hero. Only the support of the Joint Chiefs of Staff saved Truman from impeachment after the firing. He was just a larger-than-life kind of guy. Like, he had that corncob pipe in his... and sunglasses and, you know... <laughs> he cut a very cool kind of figure. And uh, wherever he went, he left an indelible memory. After gaining support from the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Truman relieved MacArthur of command. Ridgeway took MacArthur's command and held off the communists with strong fortifications and entrenchments just north of the 38th parallel. Sending occasional offensives against the Iron Triangle, the communist staging area for attacks in North Korea. Peace negotiations dragged on at Kaesong, then moved and continued to drag through 1951 to 1952. Now, the US's response was strategic bombing in North Korea and 
after a little bit of uh, looking around, I found as they were continuing this and the negotiations kept going, they, they literally bombed everything that was standing. It was, it was like 85% of all buildings in North Korea had been utterly destroyed. Like the, the whole countryside had been flattened. Now, they did this to try and use intimidation tactics against the communists when they were negotiating the peace treaty. But they, the communists would not budge, particularly on the issue of POW, prisoner of war, repatriation. Neither side wanted to appear weak, and so the talks went on and on and on, occasionally breaking down for months. Only after Eisenhower, who was himself a war hero and was unafraid of Republican criticism, since he himself was also a Republican, became president, could the US make substantial concessions to the communists. In 1953, a peace treaty had been signed that technically ended the North Korean War. They had ended hostilities in the Korean War returning to Korea to a divided status, essentially the same as it had been before the war. Neither the war nor its outcome did much to lessen the era of the Cold War tension. In short, an awful lot of people died and everything went back to status quo. Now, Bill Speakman. Bill had always felt honoured by his VC when he'd been given it and never treated it as a burden despite him becoming public property for the rest of his life. Surrounded by myth and controversy, he, by his nature, a proud but reserved man, one could say a gentle giant, but he never professed to be more than just a simple soldier, and he considered that he'd only done what he was trained to do. Born on the 21st of September in 1927, in the small area of Cheshire in England, Speakman was brought up by his mother, Hannah, a domestic servant on her own, a single mother for eight years, before she married Hubert Horton, a storekeeper and a First World War veteran. From an early age, Speakman learnt responsibility, self-reliance and a concern for others, values which were reinforced by his enthusiasm for the Scouts, in which, during the Second World War, he ran messages for the civil defence organisations made cups of teas for those who had been bombed out of their houses, and so forth. Eager to get away from home, he joined the army underage, as the war, the Second World War was ending, being posted throughout the UK and Europe. As a rank-and-file professional soldier, volunteering for active service to escape the boredom of peacetime soldiering with the Black Watch in Germany, Speakman arrived as a rank-and-file professional soldier, Volunteering for active service to escape the boredom of peacetime soldiering with the Black Watch in Germany, Speakman arrived in Korea in 1951 as one of the many individual reinforcements that had been posted to the King's Own Southern Borderers, or the KOSB, where he became a signaller and a runner for B Company in their headquarters under the command of Major Philip Harrison. So there was Bill, and he was with the KOSB, and hopefully you have um, listened to the previous uh, episode's primer for today, uh, which covered the Marianne San 
battle, which would place our hero, Bill Speakman, on top of Hill 217. But if you haven't, I'll just do a quick um, overview for you. So here we go. Marianne Sane. On the 8th of July 1951, Armistice Talks had opened between the belligerents in the Korean War. However, they broke down in August. Both sides wanted a demarcation line favourable to themselves, of course, to combat now, to combat communist uh, intransigence on the 8th of September, the United Nations crossed the Imjin River to cut off the enemy salient formed by the course of the river. In early October, under the operation name of Commando, they pushed deep into the salient and captured Kaowang San and to its north, a long climbing staircase ridgeline called Merian Sang and a supporting hill to the south of it called Hill 217. Now, as I said in, in the primer, uh, just to whet your, your appetite, the Australian Army was also involved uh, in taking of it, in particular 3RAR. And uh, essentially it was a, just a, a long staircase spurway which had been reinforced um, by about 1,200 men and essentially about 360 Australians from 3 RAR battalion uh, assaulted from right to left uh, ascending up the spur line. Now, they didn't do it on their own. They were supported by Centurion tanks and troops uh, to the south in the valley uh, who essentially were there to create a lot of noise, a lot of smoke. Um, the Centurions were giving supporting fire with cannon. And essentially, the Chinese were dug in deep and they were all watching to the south below them, watching these tanks rolling around. And then out of the gloom, uh, assaulted Australian troops running across them and they were like straight into them and... It was hand-to-hand -hand fighting before the Chinese even realised that the Australians were there. So there was, you know, the bayonets were fixed and they just came came running in screaming. And of course, the next dugouts further up the hill didn't hear it because of all the noise that was coming, going from below in the valley. So that's essentially how Marianne San was taken. And once three RER had relieved of, they were pulled off by the 9th of October and uh, the borderers took up the hinge, which is at the very end of the Mariang San ridgeline. 3RAR and the borderers worked together and they captured Hill 217. Now, the borderers stayed there for about, well, it was captured on the 9th of October and, and by the time the 4th and the 5th of November rolled around. They, they could see that the Chinese were building up numbers because they'd pushed them off in... They essentially routed them off the side of the hill. So they fell back. The Chinese regrouped and reorganised and reinforced. And they, uh, on the 4th of November, the borderers, who were now in control of the summit of 217, were attacked by the Chinese after a preparatory bombardment of about five hours. So, now, the, the terrain, I've, I've gone 
and had a bit of a look. It's extremely rocky, uh, so that, that it would have taken them forever to, to dig out the ground slits. You know, and it was it's uh, it was getting on. It was becoming quite cold uh, during the nights, and um, it was probably a fairly miserable place to exist at that stage of the game, particularly for about three weeks, sort of thing. On the fourth, the the Chinese assaulted with about two battalions and they were able to get fairly close up. It was during one of the many large-scale counter-attacks by the Chinese during this to-and-fro phase that Private Speakman... Now, the battalion came under fierce artillery fire after the preparatory bombardment. The Chinese had sent 6,000 infantry troops. 6,000. Now, the poor old borderers had about 400 people sitting up on top of the the, 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 um, the hill of 217. So, yeah, it was going to be a tough fight. Advancing in waves, the Chinese were on B Company. At dusk, the company's position looked absolutely hopeless. But Bill, who looked around and saw what was happening, was sitting there um, at headquarters and he'd been priming grenades and he'd been getting them ready for use. And essentially, he looked around and he saw that you know the Chinese are on the wire, literally they're on the perimeter of the defensive position. And he grabbed a couple of guys, about three or four other guys, sort of thing. And he's without being ordered to do so, he said, "Come on, let's go." And um, they all bundled up as many grenades as they possibly can, and filling his pouches and all the available pouches that he that he could fill with hand grenades. He rose to his feet and he charged off down the side of the hill. Standing in the dark, he stood there pelting the, the attackers who were... <laughs> we're talking battalion strength here. He's standing there and he's throwing grenades uh, into the middle of them. Now, as I said before, it was very, very cold. It was November in Korea, and uh, even though the snow wasn't on, the ground had hardened considerably. And what was happening was the grenades were hitting the ground, and like cricket balls, they were bouncing back up. And rather than the grenade just sitting on the ground with, like, think of a grenade sitting on the ground when it explodes, half of the explosion shoots into the ground, you know, half the fragments go into the ground. But because it was like a sloped area, the grenades were like coming up like, um, like in cricket, you know, the, the, you, you throw a bouncer, you know, I should say, you bowl a bouncer sort of thing at that at, at height, head height, and um, they were exploding, you know, slightly above, and it was essentially devastating, and it was causing enormous amount of casualties, and him and the uh, six other men who had come along with him they just stood there and um, pelted the, the attackers with grenade after grenade. They'd aim up their rifles, uh, pausing only quickly to re refill his pockets. He'd stand there in the dark and he'd throw grenades and the only thing he had to go by was the muzzle flashes off, off the rifles of the Chinese. So <laughs> whenever there was a flash, he'd be hurling these grenades down off the side of the hill sort of thing and he'd... You know, you hear a flash and there'd be some screams and everything like that. And um, it was getting on dark and the, the Chinese were just literally swarming up the side of the hill. 
And there he is with a few other guys and just standing there lobbing these grenades. And this kept going. And he just kept going with this until he expended all the grenades and all the other guys had uh, used up all of their grenades. And um, he literally picked up anything he could get his hands on. Now, this is the point of contention here. Like, he'd pick up cutlery, <laughs> he picked up rocks and threw them. And on occasion, he picked up a few beer bottles. Now, as the story gets told, he was um, dubbed when he got back to England as the beer bottle VC because this is the colourful part of the story that stuck. Now, he was adamant that the beer was there for uh, cooling down the mortars and the mortar tubes. So I shall leave that as it is, but... You know, <laughs> why the beer would be up there, just, just to cool down water tubes. I'll just leave it at that, shall I? Um, I think I think part of the problem was <laughs> the Scots in those days, <laughs> the whole world was just mildly, well, okay. The whole world was like quite racist, and I think the Scots had a bad reputation for being a bunch of alcoholics. And... Um, because he'd come from the Black Watch, they'd just put two and two together and got 12 and a half. So, yes, so he was very adamant that he wasn't a heavy drinker and that, you know, the beer wasn't there for um, consumption. It was just there for the, for the uh, mortar tubes. So, after throwing everything he could at them, he got shot in the leg. Now, he continued fighting for a little bit further and it was like hand-to-hand -hand combat here. And um, eventually he'd been ordered to uh, report back wounded. So, after being directly ordered to seek medical help, he went back to the fight. Um, when the medics were not looking, his rage reached new heights when, when a medic who was treating a comrade of his was hit in the neck by a mortar and died. So he just like bled out in front of him. Bill was absolutely enraged. Uh, when the medic went down, because he knew him quite well, and he uh, got back up again off his stretcher and um, went off to double with the enemy, in his own words. <laughs> now, let me just read the citation. Some of the citations, I always try and read them, um, but some of them are quite matter-of-fact. I don't know if they're necessarily just, you know, saying the basic sort of thing, but this one is, is quite descriptive. So here we go. The citation reads, From 0-100 hours, the 4th of November 1951, the defensive positions held by the 1st Battalion, the King's Own Scottish Borderers, were continuously subjected to heavy and accurate enemy shell and mortar fire. At 15.45 hours, this fire became intense and continued, thus for two more hours considerably damaging the defences and wounding a number of the men. At 16.45 hours, the enemy in their hundreds advanced in wave upon wave against the King's Own borderers and at their positions. And by 17.45 hours, fierce hand-to-hand -hand fighting was taking place at every position. Private Speakman, a member of B Company headquarters, learning that the section holding to the left of the shoulder of the company's position had been seriously depleted by casualties and had had its NCOs wounded and it was in the stages of being overrun. 
He decided on his own initiative to drive the enemy off the position and keep them off it. To effect this, he quickly collected a large pile of grenades and a party of six men. Then displaying complete disregard for his own personal safety, he led his men in a series of grenade charges against the enemy and continued to do so, holding off successive wave after wave of enemy who reached and crested the hill. The force and determination of his charges broke up each successive enemy onslaught and resulted in an ever-mounting pile of enemy dead. Having led 10 charges through withering enemy machine gun fire and mortar fire, Private Speakman was eventually severely wounded in the leg. Undaunted by his wounds, he continued to lead charge after charge against the enemy, and it was only under a direct order from his superior officer that he agreed to pause for the field uh, to get a field dressing to be applied to his wound. Having had his wound bandaged, Private Speakman immediately rejoined his comrades and led them again and again forward in a series of grenade charges up to the time of the withdrawal of his company at 2100 hours. So, I mean, the fight was pretty well over. The Chinese were just everywhere. And um, come nine o'clock at night, they decided they had to pull back. So they pulled down off the top of the hill and, and uh, withdrew while they still could. At the critical moment of the withdrawal, however, amidst an inferno of enemy machine gun and mortar fire, as well as grenades, Private Speakman led a final charge to clear the crest of the hill and hold it whilst the remainder of his company withdrew. Encouraging his gallant but by now sadly depleted party, he assailed the enemy with showers of grenades, keeping them at bay sufficiently long for his company to effect its withdrawal. Under the stress and the strain of his battle, Private Speakman's outstanding powers of leadership were revealed and he had so dominated the situation that he had inspired his comrades to stand firm and fight the enemy to a standstill. His great gallantry and utter contempt for his own personal safety were an inspiration to all of his comrades. He was, by his heroic actions, personally responsible for causing enormous losses to the enemy. And he assisted the company to maintain their position for some four hours, saving the lives of many of his comrades when they were forced to retire from their position. Private Speakman's heroism under intense fire throughout the operation and when painfully wounded was beyond praise and is deserving of supreme recognition. So, that's it's, it's quite, the, quite the description for a VC citation, that's for sure. Okay, well he's... So that was the actual action and of course the borderers had pulled down off the hill and Bill had given him plenty of cover. How he managed to get out of there alive, plus he was wounded, um, God only knows. So <laughs> I guess being able to slip away in the dark at, at the very end of it. But I mean, he, you know, here was a man standing up against a couple of battalion of soldiers. For those of you who don't know what the Chinese were generally um, running with, Chinese soldiers, they'd either have... Um, They'd either have um, Soviet rifles, but more often than not, they were given these things that, which were called burp guns, and they were like, they were drum fed, and um, they were extremely effective. They weren't particularly 
particularly accurate. And more often than not, once you started firing them, they would jam and they would just continue to fire out and, and, and run away. Uh, but if you've got 6,000 Chinese running up a hill firing these things, you know, <laughs> that's an awful lot of bullets coming your way. So how he wasn't killed, I don't know. But anyway, he managed to do it. Uh, and of course, this action changed his life. Now, the citation for the VC, as we've just said, uh, said that he imposed enormous losses on the enemy and saved the lives of many of his comrades at that as they withdrew. But when it was all written, read out to him, his first reaction after being notified for the VC was, well, what about the other guys? You know, that's that's what Bill was all about. He, he couldn't see what an extraordinary thing it was because as far as he was concerned, and like, I, I, I get what he was trying to say, you know, it wasn't just him. He had six other guys and they were standing there in front of the Chinese just as much as what he was. But I think he doesn't realise. I think it's a different thing though to follow somebody to do an extraordinary act than to actually come up with the idea yourself and have the initiative to do it yourself. I think it's, there is a bravery in just making the decision to act in your own right and to bring your friends with you. So that's why it had been landed on him. And apparently he, he was quite conspicuous, whereas his other mates were like standing in front of the Chinese, certainly, but and they were lobbing grenades, but he was taking some extraordinary risks, um, you know, on, on these charges. And he was literally running down into the middle of these Chinese, just lobbing grenades left and right sort of thing. So, you know, with, with, with may I say, after a while, with a wounded leg. So, yeah, extraordinary stuff. Now, after he'd received the VC about a month later, Bill returned to Korea um, at his own request, just simply to get away from all the adulation. Because when he went to England, he was like a bit of a rock star, really. He was Queen Elizabeth's first uh, VC that she was to uh, award somebody. And, um, you know, she was new to the post and he was nervous and she was nervous. And uh, it's a lovely interview, which I might just attach, and he's just talking talking about that, and I think it was probably the proudest part of his life sort of thing, you know, uh, when he was awarded it by her. But anyway, look, he, he demobilised in 1953, uh, the year the Korean War ended. But like a lot of soldiers, once he'd been to war, it was kind of, it changed him a little bit, and he uh, really struggled with civilian life. He just couldn't settle down, and without qualifications or anything like that, or a trade, he decided to volunteer for the army again uh, to fight in the communist insurrection of Malaya. Now, in 1955, he served on uh, for a short period with the SAS. He rejoined the King's Own Scottish borderers when they arrived in Malaya. Uh, and he finally, ranked to the, he finally rose to the rank of, of sergeant. Now, he left the army after 22 years, and in 1968, I, I, I only mention this, look, I very nearly left this out sort of thing, but 
just to show that he is uh, like anybody else. I don't know what his particular uh, motivations were. But in 1968, uh, he was arrested in, in Edinburgh for stealing 104 pounds from a woman's purse. Uh, he received an absolute discharge after paying the stolen sum in full. Uh, his decoration probably saved him from going to prison. And yeah, look, it's funny, life, life is like that and I don't know what his circumstances were for, for doing that, I can only imagine. Yes, as I said, I, I think he really, I think he must have been a bit of a lost soul back in civilian life after um, being in the army. Uh, because once again, unable to uh, settle down in civilian life. And he'd been labelled the Beer Bottle VC. And this title just followed him around in life. And he'd, he'd come to absolutely loathe it. Um, he tried various different jobs. He eventually sold his medals to try and raise army for it, to raise money for his family. And was married and divorced three times. He overall fathered his seven children, all of whom are alive today. He emigrated to South Africa, calling himself Speakman Pitt for a while, and then returned to Britain and spent a year as a pensioner at the Royal Hospital Chelsea, before going back to South Africa for a second time. Eventually, he returned back to England to the, as a Chelsea pensioner, uh, in 2015 and he expressed to his family that he would like to be buried in South Korea with his friends uh, you see this yeah I, I find this it's both touching and also very sad because you know some of these people had been dead for many many years and um, yeah look I think he's just lost really um, from, from what I can understand of, that I've been able to find out about the man. He was just, he's probably quite a lonely person and he was never able to quite connect back and really make a life for himself again after that. And that happened. That, that is such a common thing with veterans sort of thing that, um, yeah, they can sometimes really struggle unless... You know, they'd be lucky and they've got strong support and everything like that. But um, going through something like what he went through, um, you know, you can be as brave as you like and win a VC, but at the same time, you'll still find aspects of life that will defeat you. Sergeant Bill Speakman was awarded the highest honour for gallantry for single-handedly taking on the enemy during the Battle of the Korean War in 1951. Now, he died last year on the 18th of June in 2018, having won the Victoria Cross and sustained a display of indomitable personal bravery of the kind no writer of fiction would have dared to invent. He spent much of his later life trying with various success to downplay his resulting fame. It was his final desire for his ashes to be flown 5,500 miles or in the real distance of 8,800 kilometres back to the Far East to be interred with his brothers in arms for their final reunion in the United Nations Memorial Cemetery in Korea. That concludes 
uh, tonight's episode on Bill Speakman. Uh, and we leave Korea now with some words written in the 90s by my favourite British journalist, Christopher Hitchens. Even in former days, Korea was known as a hermit kingdom for its stubborn resistance to outsiders. And if you wanted to create a totally isolated and hermetic society, North Korea, in the years after 1953, during the armistice, would have been the place to start. It was bounded on two sides by the sea, and to the south by an impregnable, uncrossable DMZ, which divided it from South Korea. Its northern frontier consisted of a long stretch of China and a short stretch of Siberia. In other words, it was the only contiguous neighbour to Mao and Stalin. The next nearest neighbour was Japan, a historic enemy of the Koreans and a cruel colonial occupier until 1945. Add to that fact that almost every work of man had been reduced to shards by the Korean War. Air Force General Curtis LeMay later boasted that we burned down every town in North Korea and that he granted his bombers only when there was no more targets to hit anywhere in the north of the 38th parallel. Pyongyang was an ashen moonscape. It was Year Zero. Kim Il-sung could create a laboratory to control conditions where he alone could engineer the human soul.